The pre-med path can be super confusing. If you'd love some help on your path or on your applications, use the promo code PMY for pre-med years, PMY over at medicalschoolhq.net and get some help from some of our experts, former directors of admissions, admissions officers, other experts. We have a small team ready to help you today. Again, that's promo code PMY to get a discount on our services at medicalschoolhq.net. The Pre-Med Year, session number 549. Hello, and welcome to The Pre-Med Years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Welcome to the Pre-Med Years. Thank you so much for joining me today. It is Wednesday, usually when episodes come out. You may be listening to this on a Thursday, Friday, Saturday, any other day as well. Welcome. Welcome to the Pre-Med Years. I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. Don't forget to subscribe or follow in your favorite podcast app, whether that be Spotify, Apple Podcasts, I personally like Overcast, whatever it may be. Today, we have a great guest, Dr. Ellen Miller, who is an advisor at Hofstra University. And we're going to talk all about kind of the, the knowledge of, of pre-health advisors, of uh, her knowledge of running a post-bac program as well, and so much more. I love going to the source of experts like Dr. Miller. So hopefully this is a great episode for you to learn a little bit more. Before we jump in, though, I want to talk about the MCAT Minutes brought to you by Blueprint MCAT. Did you know, did you know that with a free account over at BlueprintMCAT.com, you can get access to a half-length diagnostic, a free full-length exam, as well as their amazing study planner tool. Planning your study is the most important thing to make sure you know what you're doing when it comes to taking the MCAT. Knowing the content is important. Having a plan to study that content as well as fitting in all of the full-length exams is imperative. Go to blueprintmcat.com today. Sign up for that free account. Let's go and jump in. Say hello to Dr. Ellen Miller. Dr. Ellen Miller, welcome to the Pre-Med Years. Thanks for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Gray. I am quite a fan. I listen to your <laughs> podcast all the time, and they do inform my pre-med advising practice. So you are a pre-med advisor. You run yes. a post-bac program. You are also yes. an admissions committee member. Let's talk about your crazy path to this world of, of the pre-med and medical student. How did you, how did you get involved in this world? Well, it was quite interesting. Growing up, I always wanted to do something in the healthcare field, physician assistant, genetic counselor. When it got to chemistry, <laughs> that was my nemesis. So I remember years ago, my uh, former uh, supervisor said, Ellen, do you want to work with pre-med students or athletes? And I'm like, well, if I can't be a pre-med student or pre-health student myself, I want to work with them. And that is just how it happened. I got maybe a half hour of training and I was, you know, I was on my way. Thrown in and you're the expert all of a sudden. How, yes. Yeah. How much it's interesting you say that because there's, um, there's a lot of pushback 
in the general pre-med world that advisors, because they don't go to medical school, they don't know what they're talking about. You've been in this right. world for a long time. You are an expert. You're an admissions committee member. You have all of this knowledge. How can we tell students that are listening to this, right? The fact that me talking right now, I am a physician, and I tell students all the time, me being a physician has nothing to do with the knowledge that I have talking to students about how to get into medical school. How can we reassure students that the advisors at their institutions have knowledge even though they haven't gone through this process? That's a that's a great point. So a lot of the students I'll get, particularly who are maybe shadowing or working with maybe older physicians, it was a totally different ball game even when I started, you know, years ago. It's it's steadily changed. So someone who went to school, you know, a couple of decades ago, it is quite different. So I like to say, you know, based on the information that I get with alums coming back and, and talking to me talking with current, you know, admissions officers, I stay current, you know, people who possibly who went through this admissions piece years ago might not be current. So even if I think about back to even 2015, changes in the MCAT, now even the shift in more and more medical schools want community service work, where Whereas that used to be more like clinical work. So again, keeping up on the trends, I think, is is what's quite important. And then talking to you know a bunch of different people from um, you know all over the place through conferences, through reading, again, and talking to former students who have just gone through the process or in medical school. And again, it's really good to get you know an overview of everything that's currently going on, and even how current healthcare issues, right? The the big, big thing was pandemic, how that in, impacted, you know, our, our medical schools and training programs. So again, staying current is the most important thing, I think. Yeah. And you and I recently saw each other at a conference where we yes. were educating ourselves and, and trying to stay as current as possible, uh, hanging out with the likes of the dean of, uh, of admissions at NYU yes. and Vermont and Michigan and, yes. and PCOM and all of these schools that are out there trying to share knowledge with advisors. So uh, I think the, the great way to start this conversation is to reassure students that advisors at your college at your university, they're going and educating themselves and staying up to date. And obviously there are always exceptions and all this fun stuff, but um, yeah, trust your advisors. They're, they're doing good things for you. So let's talk about this journey because there are a lot of students who go through this process. Uh, I was one of them, right? I was raised in kind of a, a middle, um, middle income family. Both of my parents uh, that I lived with, my mom and my stepdad didn't graduate high school. Um, and so I didn't have the social capital, the, the financial capital, the, uh, any of that fun stuff to really help me understand this process. And yet I was still able to do it. So I would love to have a conversation with you about how students who come from a, a situation where their parents aren't in the healthcare field, their neighbors aren't doctors and PAs and whatever, and they don't have the financial resources to go, go abroad for a shadowing program or whatever. Right. How can students start to work their way through this process without all of that privilege, right? Let's call it what it is. Yes. 
Um, and, and that really resonates with me. It, it's funny, I think back to uh, where I'm currently doing new student orientation right now. So meeting our, our incoming students for the first time, you could almost tell the students who have that passion or that fire in their belly that this is what they really want. So we work with them from you know, welcome week on, what you should be doing developmentally each year, how you might go about finding these opportunities. Let's say, like you said, if a family member or a family friend is not a physician. So reaching out to the, the resources that they already have, right, to so their family physician, if they need to work. So a, a lot of students are under the uh, assumption that if they're getting paid and getting a healthcare experience, that's not as good as volunteering. Well, that's not the case. You know, certainly many students have to work during college. So if they could get a paid gig, medical assisting, medical scribe, I mean, that kind of kills two birds with one stone with them. But again, we encourage them to join um, student organizations where they'll talk with their peers, might have connections. Luckily, um, in our, the pre-health advisor professional organization, we literally have, we send out opportunities on our listserv to students, and I'm sure they're tired of it, at least two or three times a week, just to, you know, get them to see what else is out there. So just trying to change their mindset to say, just because I don't have a, you know, a fortune and I have to work that this is doable. Again, it's also, some of that is that imposter syndrome we spoke briefly about, just to get them to, you know, to, to believe in their selves, but show them that the different opportunities and not, and not everyone has the luxury of not having to work. We have students in our office who do like clerical work, you know, to earn some extra money. And again, they're learning valuable skills. So also to encourage them, even if they're doing something non-health related, mm -hmm. that they still get valuable skills that they can apply, right, to them being uh, a healthcare professional. So again, just showing them all different kinds of ways that they could tap in to their potential. Yeah. Un unfortunately, a lot of these entry-level pre-med jobs are very low-paying. And so students right. will look at their situation and go, I can't work for $12 an hour, $13 an hour. I need $16, $17 an hour. And there's there's this other job that I can do that's paying me to that uh, will support what I need. Yes. And a lot of times students think this is an all or none game, right? If you're not doing 20 hours a week of clinical experience and it doesn't count. Talk about your experience. Uh, again, being on an admissions committee, you have lots of different kind of ideas and angles and, and uh, viewpoints yes. on this world. For the student who does work potentially full-time or, or very much so part-time a, a lot of hours a week, in a non-clinical job, not healthcare related job, because mm -hmm. that's what pays the bills. Right. And then they go and get a part-time job or just volunteer for five hours a, a week or something. Mm -hmm. A lot of students think that is trash and then they don't do it at all. Talk about that mentality and, and the thought process there. Right. So, and again, working with postbacks, we have a lot of students in that boat that maybe even they have families. Mm -hmm. So, 
you know, what I like to tell them, it's more the quality of the experience. So let's say you can only volunteer in a hospital five hours a week. And the great thing about a hospital, right, it's 24 seven. Um, you can, you know, do something like that. I know as a committee member, I am really interested in the student who can balance academics, almost full-time work and do, you know, do some something clinically related. Again, it's more the quality of the experience for me and that they are able to keep their grades up and, you know, be a, and be a, a, a employee. That's important to me. I also like to, because sometimes I ask for letters of recommendation if students haven't done so well in their undergraduate year. So I really value what the employer has to say. So let's say a student, you know, took on too much as an undergrad and had to work a lot. So what their employers are telling me, if they worked in a pizzeria straight for five years and maybe they're a manager, that speaks a lot to their, not only their integrity, their ability to balance different tasks. So again, that shows a lot to me as opposed to maybe the student who didn't have to work and maybe their only experience was shadowing, which is a, a bit more passive. So again, I like to see if you're, because, and I don't have to tell you certainly with medical school, you have to balance a lot of different things. So if they are able to balance these different tasks and do them well, that stands out for me more than, you know, they were able to, uh, let's say, go on, you know, a, a study abroad or, or something like that. So that continued, sustained perseverance you know, is very important. There's a student listening to this who maybe comes from a more privileged background and then they're going, well, what am I like? I'm punished because I didn't struggle. Talk to that student who's like, wait a minute. (laughs) Now I seem like I'm disadvantaged now. No, 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 certainly. But again, it's, it's all about what you do with that time that you're not in the classroom, right? So if you're engaged in a lot of activities. I mean, sometimes I've seen students who have that perfect 4-0, but maybe have not done a lot in the campus community or for their community overall. So again, that's something that I'm, I'm looking for, almost that they have certainly a, um, you know, an interest in making their, their own community better or something, things like that. Yeah. So uh, not not just classroom stuff, not, not just, just disadvantaged right. stuff, but just what are you doing to impact those that people overall, around you? Yes, yes. That overall, again, we always talk about the well, well-rounded student, right? Mm-hmm. So it's not maybe someone is passionate about yoga, so they they teach yoga maybe at an after-school program or you know something like that. And students who really can think out of out out of the box really and you know interweave their passion with their passion for medicine we we see it again i see it a lot um with students working in underserved areas they might be tutoring they might be translating at at a clinic you know for um people in their community who don't speak the language so again something besides Getting good grades, right, is very important. And we heard that over and over at the conference we were at about the the rigor of a student's program. But also they have to be doing something else to show what kind of person they are. Yeah. Let's talk about 
social capital, right? One of the biggest things yes. that is important for students to do theoretically is, is shadowing, right? Getting out into yes. the world and really understanding what they're getting themselves into. And there are students out there listening who, again, don't have parents who are physicians, neighbors who are physicians and in the healthcare world, and they don't know where to start to go find someone to shadow. Maybe they reached out to their local hospital and the hospital said, nope, sorry. And, and they kind of gave up from there. What are your suggestions, tips for students when they're trying <laughs> as best as possible right. to go find these experiences? And I know it, it's been different in the last, uh, a little difficult in the last couple of years. Mm -hmm. So what I recommend to students again is to join we have an AMSA, a chapter of AMSA on campus, who so join a pre-med club, talk to your peers about what they're doing. So maybe we, we've had a lot of students who maybe their friends uh, have parents or family members who are physicians. But again, network amongst their peers, talk with their pre-med advisors about where students in that school typically volunteer. Again, attend events on campus, read their emails, go to their career center even, you know, to get some ideas of, of internships and things like that. And we've had students say, well, I tried, you know, a, my local hospital, their volunteer services office, they didn't get back to me, but you need to be proactive. So not just try once. If you don't get someone through an email or phone call, then go down there. So again, you have to kind of like keep at it. But I think that peer networking is very helpful in connecting students with other opportunities. Yeah, we're we're hoping to build a lot of this stuff into our software platform map so that students, when they're using Mapped and talk about their experiences, we can gather like the places where students shadow in one place right. and we yep. can gather jobs and other stuff in one place so that, right. again, students who don't have that social capital can just go get a free map account and go, okay, show, show me what's available just to make it easier, right? Because right? a lot of students, yes. not only they are missing out on the social capital, but they also don't know the questions to ask. And, and so they're they're behind in so many different ways and then they get to the application and and the the admissions process and it's like oh i didn't know i needed that oh i didn't know i needed this and then it's like i didn't get into med school and shot it's like right. well of course you didn't because you didn't know anything and, and it's really hard for students yes. so uh, obviously and it could be a very intimidating process yeah. right for a student who you know comes from you know maybe a, a more uh blue collar background to approach these professionals. It's very intimidating. Also something that students don't recognize is a lot of them might've been caregivers for their family members, yeah. maybe grandparents, parents through cancer treatments. So also to be able to talk about those experiences they've had within their family, that certainly they've been able to do a lot more that you would be able to do, you know, in any kind of a healthcare setting. Yeah. You work with a lot of post-bac students. These are students yes. who are typically uh, going through the process and yes. um, there there are multiple kinds of post-bac programs. What, what's the, what type of post-bac program do you have? Is it a career changer or academic enhancer or a little bit both. of a mix? It's both. Okay. So a little both. Yes. Yeah. So we initially started it um, as a career changer, but we found, you know, a lot of it, uh, morphed into academic enhancer, but we get students on all end of the spectrum, 22 years old, 
you know, just kind of slug it out in college. You had some issues first and second year, and now they're trying to, you know, uh, enhance their record. Or we have people in finance or people who are attorneys and said, I cannot one more minute do, <laughs> you know, work so hard at a career I'm not passionate about. So yep. they want to change careers. Um, and again, the, the diversity in the student and their goals is really incredible. So we're lucky enough to have, you know, basically whatever you want to do in the healthcare field, we can help figure that out. Also, unlike a lot of the programs, we're not lockstep. So I'll meet with students, their initial meeting, go over their transcript, we'll develop a, a plan of study. So I, our school is expensive. So I cannot in good conscience say you have to repeat general bio if you got an A in it. Yeah. That's just not. So again, we try to make a personalized plan that's going to work with what they, their previous background, where they want to go, and realistically, what'll work around their work experiences and if they have, you know, a family. And then having those hard conversations where, you know, possibly if this is your fourth time applying, you know, what can we do now differently that you're going to, you know, strike gold? Yeah. Uh, you mentioned costs. Postback programs are generally not very uh, inexpensive. And students, yes. when they're out there trying to find a program, they're faced with lots of options. They're faced with master's level programs. They're right. faced with SMPs, which are kind of built for the pre-health student. They're yes. faced with formal postback programs that, that kind of cater to to that specific student. And then they have this do-it-yourself postback option where they can either stay on campus where they're at, they can go to their local community college, potentially online courses through, through lots of different schools, especially now kind of post-COVID. Maybe some med schools are a little bit more lenient with, with online right. work. Mm -hmm. when, when you're talking with uh, potential postback students, how do you advise them to figure out what's going to work best for them? Well, I, I do it as a layered approach. So I want to look at undergraduate if they have to, again, enhance or build their undergraduate science GPA. Then once you know we've established that, then we might talk about that they still might need a master's after this. And then I'm honest with students. If they've gotten mostly, I think the hardest student to work with is students who have all their courses in the B range, B minus range, and their GPA is just not high enough. Then I'm going to suggest a master's program. So to me, it's all about doing the right thing for the student. But let's say if there's some C's, D's, then, you know, certainly I would recommend it, whether it's our program or another program, a post-bac program to raise their undergrad GPA. But again, if they just need they're in that three, 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 four range, then I'm definitely going to recommend a master's. And then we do talk about cost, right? Because we know with some postback programs, it could be a $50,000 gamble. So we want to be realistic about, you know, costs, but I do feel strongly and, and part of the reason why I had our postback program uh, formalized about 20 years ago, there should be a way for these students to be tracked and be supported. So wherever they're they're going to go, they should have, you know, ongoing advising. Some programs have like MCAT prep built into that. I mean, that's great. But you want to at least 
look for a program that's going to have ongoing advising support in class selection, but also the most important is that application process, right? So you don't want to be just left high and dry. Students also should look for, you know, are there ongoing student support services like tutoring, career services, um, you know, things like that. Um, You know, is there any special like research courses? Our, in our program, we give priority registration to students. I know some of the students who go to like community college or state schools, they get closed out of the, cl- the very classes that they need. Yeah. So that's not helpful if you can't get the courses that you need. So again, we believe strongly these are the only classes you're taking, these science classes. You have a limited time frame mm-hmm. because likely you're at least – volunteering, if not working or raising a family, we want to make it as convenient for you to take classes yeah. as possible. For this, the student, let's, let's go back to the student who, again, from a, from a capital standpoint, again, whether that's right. money, social, whatever, where do you think that student theoretically in, in your experience, I guess theoretically is not the right word, but in your experience, where does that student get lost in the system? And what can we tell them today to say, here's where you need to catch yourself to make sure you're not <laughs> sliding all the way down, like in shoots yeah. and ladder. Like <laughs> We don't want you to slide yes. all the way down to the beginning. So that's a, a great, that's a great question. So as a young pre-med advisor, I still remember my first year, and I had a student who had a 1.7 after his freshman year. I thought he is not going anywhere. Okay. But he just struggled the first two semesters. And then fast forward, I was going to his medical school graduation. So I think that critical, um, that first and second year, that f- those first two semesters, students get very discouraged. They are, they maybe don't do well in the sciences. They maybe, you know, think, oh, I can utilize those same study habits I had in high school, which we know for a lot of high school seniors, you know, they're not greatly developed study habits. I can apply them to college. So I think it's really vetting out the students who really just didn't pick the correct major, just don't have the support that they need. They they didn't take advantage of tutoring or advising, but making sure we don't lose those students and they give up too early. And unfortunately, now I'm going to get myself in trouble, but, you know, some of the science faculty look at that as a true vetting process and not, you know, not everyone is going to survive those first two semesters, but we also should be looking at it as a way to support these students. That's where I see a lot of them you know, kind of fall off the map. And I hear from then post-bac students years later, well, I didn't do so well my first, second year. My advisor told me, go do something else. Yep. And now I'm back here. I'm back. However many years <laughs> later, because yep. this is what I really wanted to do. Yeah, it's so sad, all of the years that they potentially missed out on doing the thing they want to do. <sighs> right, and I learned you really, I am certainly not God nor an admissions director. <laughs> And then I want to do everything I can to encourage a student. I want to be realistic, but I also want to encourage them and try to get them to where they want to be. It just might take them a bit longer. Yeah. 
it might be a bit more circuitous. Wait, wait a minute, L- Ellen, what you're saying, you're advising students on how to do the thing they want to do? It's like it's almost built into your name as an advisor. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. General, oh, this is not. This is not for you. Yeah, and and I've I've gotten in trouble in the past, uh, and I I try to make amends every time I meet new advisors, and they are like, "Hey, you're that guy." I'm like, <laughs> "I'm friendly, I promise," because I never I I didn't add enough context to when I talked poorly about some advisors that it's the dream crushers that I really speak vehemently against right the, the those people out there whether it's an advisor a mentor a family member whoever that says you can't do this you shouldn't do this i'm like who are you to tell someone what their dream is or not right exactly and you know i also understand the pressure the other way right because we all need to report on statistics of how many people get in we also know that people manipulate right mm-hmm. Manipulate, report statistics however they want. Yep. So again, and I I might be a little different in my view as I want this. I am very, very happy with what I do and I'm grateful most days <laughs> uh, what I do. And I want, I want everyone, students, particularly students I see, I want to feel, I want them to feel that same happiness and satisfaction you know, with what they want to do. So again, to dissuade someone, and again, there there is always ways, right, to convey that message. So to, yeah. to dissuade someone and not give them any other options is just not the way to go for me. Yeah. And I've gotten in trouble from the science faculty. Oh, they failed my class twice. I'm like, well, so <laughs> maybe they should take another professor. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Mm, What's the common denominator? Common denominator. Here? <laughs> simple they're like i'm proud of my 40 average i'm like you shouldn't be um yeah that's that's no bueno um so looking at this process right it's it's a crazy process you've been involved in this uh not not to age either of us you've been in this process for a while if if you could right i'm gonna do the the med school interview question right if you could may wave a magic wand uh what would you what would you fix about this process pre-meds and you talk a lot about it too uh transparency sometimes i feel like it's just um you roll the dice and and sometimes you know the the student you could swear is going to get in they have that three eight they've done everything right their mcats are good they've got a great personality and they don't get in mm-hmm. like i just i wish there was more and I know that can't be because of of the numbers, more certainty in the process, but more, um, again, I I wish I, there, there is something that goes on that I feel like I don't know about, you know, in Mm -hmm. these, these bigger admissions meetings. Um, I just wish it was more certain process that if every student did what they were supposed to do, what they, we tell them that they should do, they do it all right. And they're compassionate, wonderful human beings. They should be able to go. You know, if I had a magic wand, I would make (laughs) medical school, you know, more seats available. Yeah. Something I just feel like sometimes, even if you do everything right, it's just numbers. And sometimes you just, it doesn't work out. Yeah. Um, what? That's the what most happens, right? Why does that student who 
theoretically, uh, you look at their application, I look at their application, 10 other people look at their application, and we all scratch our heads going, you should have got in. Is is that, assuming they got interviews, is that maybe they're a bad interviewer? Uh, if they didn't get any interviews, is that... Well, I think it's... Did it's, they apply to the wrong schools? Like, where where are they missing out? Right. So it could be a few things, right? So certainly if they got interviews, then it could be something with their interview style. And we could, you know, we could coach that. If they didn't get any interviews, maybe they're not applying to the right schools. So my hope would be, and, and I've certainly, and I don't do it often, I will call and advocate for a student because I, I think if I did it for everyone, right, there would be no value in yeah. that. Um. And then I try to get feedback, you know, to tell the student. But I think the difference between these, some of these students just stick with it and they're not dissuaded by not getting in that first time, Mm -hmm. you know, and they're, you know, they're kind of willing to be open to to feedback, right? It's, It's hard to hear about something maybe you're not doing correctly, but then we're going to, you know, we're going to recalibrate and we're going to start fresh, you know, with some new eyes and maybe change the list, give them interview coaching, because you can tell the ones, the ones that really want to continue and apply a second or a third time. In my experience, for the most part, then they end up getting in. They don't, you know, it's too quick. It might not be quick enough for them or their parents, right? We get a lot of that as well. But I, I would want them to just to stick to it because eventually I think it's just, you know, if if they keep on going, eventually they get to where they want to go. Yeah. Do you think potentially, again, the conference that we were at, I don't know if you sat in on the session where uh, yes. Dr. Rivera was talking about. Yes, a little troubled. AI in admissions yes. and the what they're doing at NYU um, validated theoretically the uh, process that they use compared to yes. what the humans would have chosen in terms of who they're right. inviting for interviews. Do you think we'll get to a point in 10 or 15 years where people just submit applications and, and the computers are doing their things and then ranking everyone and going, hey, the first 25,000 people, congratulations, you're going to med school somewhere and the rest, try again next year. God, I hope not, because it misses the nuances in the in the in the student and their background. Let's say if you know uh, Johnny had to work extra hours because his you know he was his mom. Oh, we can we can work that into the AI. We can calculate that kind of stuff. I, I just it misses the whole human concept. Mm-hmm. Like it, it's that's frightening to me. So I get you know I was complaining about you know right we we don't quite know sometimes what they're looking for i mean this is pretty straightforward but it misses the humanness right we're te- we want our students to be uh humanistic physicians so then we're going to have a computer generated process for admissions it's to me it's fr- it's frightening yeah. that cuz not everything could be an algorithm yeah yeah, I don't know. Really? I, 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 I don't. I think it could be. Um, because- I could, but I will say that <laughs> sitting at the table with my other advisor friends, we we were a little, um, let's say, 
a little we we thought that was a little challenging perspective yeah. particularly dissuading letters of recommendation and things mm-hmm. like that saying basically you know advisors are only going to write positive about students yeah so really discounting almost our voice in the process was a little disheartening yeah right yeah, because I can we want to advocate for our students of course but then isn't that biased and aren't we trying to remove that bias from this process you do have a point there, but I still <laughs> wait I a minute. Still think. Yeah, it's hard, right? It's really hard, uh, and I don't think there's a, a right or a wrong. There's what works for one school and one admissions right. committee. We had clearly right. There was a different, a completely different view then mm-hmm. from Vermont. I I enjoyed, and our students sometimes don't think this way. That not only does the school have to want you, but you have to fit into their mission, 100%. right? So you have to believe in, let's say, rural medicine. If you want to go there, you're going to be miserable. So that's not a great fit either. So it's just interesting how different schools view different um criteria yeah and I, I think that's the, the the biggest takeaway for me day in and day out when i talk to students is they think that it's a uh, a one goal mm-hmm. kind of situation where every student is setting themselves up for one specific admissions process and yes. one specific picture that the pre-med is supposed to be. And I'm yes. like, there are 230 or 40 schools at this point uh, and 240 different opinions, right? Or, or yes. exponential yep. compared to how many admissions committee members and other people involved in this process. And and students get frustrated by that. As advisors, I get frustrated. The answer is always, yes. it depends, it depends, it depends. Right. But that's beneficial for the average student, right? Yes, yes. Because it, it's not cookie cutter, mm-hmm. right? So you want the student who's maybe, like I said, in, into, uh, let's say, more like, I don't know, international health. You want them to find the place or, or someone who is more interested in, you know, working in the community or more interested in primary care. So you want them to find their place. What I don't like about students too, is like you said, that uh, almost that cookie cutter approach. Well, what is my list? What do I have to do? How many hours do I have to do this? How many hours do I have to do that? Mm-hmm. That drives me crazy because then it makes me wonder, are you just doing these activities just to do them, to check them off? That's, yeah. you know, that's not an okay thing. Yeah, I, I was talking to at a, at a different conference. I <laughs> went to the four different conferences, all the regional conferences this year. And at a different one that that you and I were at, uh, one of the dean of admissions at a local medical school there, we, we chatted all three days we were there. And during one of the conversations, he's like, I just can't stand when students come up to me at these things and they say, tell me who you're looking for. It's like, I don't, I don't want to answer that question because we're looking at students individually. We don't want one type of student. So I think it's, it's hard to relay that to students to say, right, go follow your passions and go do the things you're interested in. And then put yourself out on an application and the schools that are interested in you will be interested in you. Yes. Yes. I had a, a student who, um, because she was a geography and global studies major and she did wrote her essay on yoga, you know, they, they snatched her right up. So again, trying to get them out of this mindset of, you know, doing X amount of hours for X amount of time is the way to go. And I have to join 15 different clubs and, 
again, trying to change that mindset is, is a challenge. Yeah. Well, Dr. Ellen Miller, as we wrap up here, you are joining us in Baltimore, October 6th through 8th for MAPCON. Talk about uh, what you're hoping to share knowledge of while we're there and, and interact with students while we're there. So I really, again, I'm very passionate, probably because I was one myself, the non-traditional post-bac students, and really what they should be looking for in a program. Because again, those programs, like we see, one size doesn't fit all for them. And then, and encouraging them, if this is their passion, whether they're 22 or 42, that the we can find a way to support them through this journey. So again, if this is what you really want to do, there is a way to go about doing it. To have regrets, to not have followed your true path, you know, is not the way you want to live your life. So again, to, to support, encourage, and then find each individual, you know, a path that works for them, that would be, you know, a wonderful thing. All right, so there you have it, Dr. Ellen Miller from Hofstra University. Hopefully this was helpful, give you some insight into the world of advisors and what they're doing and how they're learning and what they're how they're helping you and all of that good stuff. There's some great conversation that I had today with Dr. Miller. Hope you have a great week. We'll see you next time here on The Pre-Med Years. This is MedEd Media.